This is Talking Points from Lessica Camper Communications. Today, we have about 4,500 to 5,000 Ohioans not receiving care because our, our agency's abilities to be able to keep up with it has, has dwindled significantly. So we've got Ohioans that are in their homes eligible and entitled to the care. We've got agencies who desire to serve them, but because we can't hire and retain staff, we're now at a tipping point. Good morning, this is Mark Rickle with Lessa Camper Communications. Medicaid home care is at a critical juncture because large portions of the state no longer have access to quality home care services. And the situation is on track to get even worse. Within the next two decades, the population of those 60 and older is expected to grow more than four times faster than Ohio's overall population. While receiving health care at home is less costly and can be more effective than institutional care, Ohioans on Medicaid are increasingly added to waiting lists and go without proper care because the industry is experiencing an exodus of providers. Reimbursement rates are not covering the cost of providing care, and the rates today are essentially the same as they were in 2000. If we want to care for the influx of older Ohioans to allow them to age in place and to help others who are struggling with disabilities, chronic illness, or recovering from surgery, we need to address the issue now. The Ohio Council of Home Care and Hospice a nonprofit association that represents the interests of home health care providers in Ohio, is asking Ohio legislators to help solve the crisis as the General Assembly works through the state's biennial budget. I'm joined this morning by Lisa Von Lebded Zydek, the Council's Board Chair, and Executive Director Joe Russell, who are all too aware of Ohio's Medicaid home care crisis. They say the problem can be addressed in the state's biennial budget and that Ohio should value the health and safety of its most vulnerable residents in a way that's on par with Medicare and private pay. For example, Ohio Medicare payments can be more than 300 uh, percent what Ohio Medicaid pays for the exact same service. So, uh, Lisa and, and Joe, thank you for coming on this morning and, and, and sharing with us a, a little bit of what's going on and, and uh, your work into um, hopefully uh, uh, solve, the, solve this crisis. Um, so, Tommy, uh, Lisa, right off the bat, why are the reimbursement rates uh, for Medicaid home care so low? Well, first of all, thanks for having us today. Um, why are they so low? I believe that in the almost 20 years that I've spent in home and community-based services, home care has always been an afterthought. You know, we never took center stage. In fact, I used to say it was Medicare's best kept secret because nobody really knew about the services that could be provided in the home. It wasn't really until after 2010 that, you know, a, a large push was put on the marketing and education about what we can do post-acute in homes by being able to provide care. Because of being that afterthought, I really don't believe that payers like Medicaid were really thinking about us as a complement of care and therefore just didn't really look at providing us reimbursements. In 2015 and 16, you know, it does appear as though there was some changes made, but those changes actually ended up hurting our agencies and, and left us in a situation where the discrepancies and changes in rates between LPNs and RNs actually furthered the issue that we have with the payment system. 
Um, I came into the council in 2020, I believe. So the last biennium, you know, is when we really started to put some pressure around the rates that I was involved in. And at that point, we did receive a 6.1% increase, but it just simply wasn't enough. Not when you look at the rates of, you know, inflation and what we were paying nurses in 1998 as compared to what we're paying them today. Uh, Joe, anything to add to that? Well, thanks, Mark. I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Um, I think Lisa did a really great job to to kind of talk about uh, where where we've come from and and really how policy innovation has lagged behind, and of course, um, the reimbursement structures that come with it have also lagged behind. Um, I think we, uh, from from the association's perspective, uh, we don't we care less about why we're here. Um, and more about what what are we going to do to to find a solution, um, and if quite frankly, if we don't find a solution to ensure that the reimbursement rates are covering what it costs to actually provide the care, uh, we're going to start to see a lot more Ohioans without access to these very important services. Well, and, and Jeff, you know, continue with that. I mean, can you can you tell me who who these Medicaid patients are? Who are we talking about? Yeah, I think the best way to to maybe tell that story is to tell the story of our members. So we've got um, members who are large uh, statewide organizations, uh, uh, privately owned, uh, nonprofit, um, small local organizations um, that serve patients from the whole continuum. And so... Um, a, a lot of the Medicaid patients that that we serve uh, are typically fall into a couple different categories. Uh, one is pediatric patients. Um, there's plenty of uh, kids who are born with with special needs, special skilled needs. And of course, um, the, the, the thing you want to do when you have a new baby is, is bring that baby home and, and we make that possible. Uh, we serve people uh, with de developmental disabilities, um, people with behavioral health needs. Um, and then, of course, uh, we serve a lot of people who are who are 65 and over in the Medicaid program. So me the Medicaid program is designed for uh, people who have a certain in income threshold that's uh, below federal poverty level. So it's a they say it's a pro the healthcare for the poor, uh, unlike Medicare, that is a program designed specifically for the elderly population. Great. Now, um, and then Lisa, you. The dwindling number of the Medicaid caregivers. I mean, give me or talk a little bit about how how is that impacting the the patients and their families. I mean, how many caregivers or how many families is a caregiver servicing? And talk about where that stress falls. Well, first of all, I think you have to look at the epidemic within the pandemic, right? I mean, a lot changed when the pandemic hit. First of all, it put home care on center stage. Right. I mean, home is where the heart is. It's where people most want to be. And, you know, there was a lot of negative media around what was happening in the skilled nursing facilities. Completely unfair. But it really made people realize that if I can get the care at home and if I can keep my loved one at home, I want to do so. Simultaneous to that was nurses starting to exit the field. Right. Um, the concept of working from home, desktop case management or just retiring early. There was a lot of nursing burnout that occurred in 2020 and 21, and nurses started to leave the industry or 
realizing that they could get paid a lot more for what they were currently doing, they were starting to take travel jobs or agency jobs so that they could make almost twice what they were currently making. So that drove up the cost of care. It also created this really um, unsteady dynamic with our ability to be able to not only recruit, but then hire and retain nurses, because it almost became like the Wild West. And it wasn't just limited to nurses. This, 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 you know, went also down to the home health aides, to the physical therapists, to even social workers, right? So cost of care was continuing to rise because demand was going up, but yet the folks were leaving the industry because of burnout and because of different types of payment structures outside of the norm. So as all of that is happening and families are really wanting to keep their patients in the home, if at all humanly possible, what we're left with is high demand for in-home care, low access to in-home care. And if you can get the in-home care, you've got to pay so much more to get it. Oh, but the Medicaid program hasn't increased our payment system at all. So the $50 that we would have gotten back in 2000 to provide care for, for nursing care or the $17 and change that we would have gotten for home health aid care has remained the same. But but we've gone from having to pay those nurses somewhere around probably $20 to $22 in 1998 to about $33 to $35 right before the pandemic, upwards of over $40 now. And that's for nursing. Look at what it's done to the home health aids. Today, we have about 4,500 to 5,000 Ohioans not receiving care because our, our agency's abilities to be able to keep up with it has, has dwindled significantly. So we've got Ohioans that are in their homes, eligible and entitled to the care. We've got agencies who desire to serve them, but because we can't hire and retain staff, we're now at a tipping point. And, and it's, it's coming through by way of the numbers. We predicted this would happen if the Department of Medicaid didn't start to take a look at things a couple of years ago, but now we're here and, and it is a massive problem. So Joe, uh, how how will increasing the rates you know, solve the workforce shortage um, for agencies which provide the home care? That's a really great question, Mark. Um, the, the, it, it really comes down to the, the issue, which is um, not only is there a shortage of people available to work. And, and that's that's not an issue that's unique to our industry. It's actually, we've seen that across the board. Uh, really where it kind of becomes a particularly difficult issue for us is the fact that even within the existing pool, we can't compete. Um, the reason for that is simple. Uh, the reimbursement rates for other sectors of healthcare in which our providers are able to work um, can simply pay those people more per hour than, than we can because they get higher reimbursement rates. And so where we might be able to pay an aid $13 an hour uh, on a good day, um, you know, we've got, there's other sectors of healthcare that would employ that same person with the same credentialing level at $20 an hour. So you can see it's a really big issue. Um, because if you're making, if you're at that income level, that that's a huge bump, right? So, um, the the Medicaid reimbursement rates, they're they don't seem to be based on anything in particular, right? They're not looking at costs. They're not, and that's fundamentally the problem. And it's really um, putting my my college hat on and and my macroeconomics hat. I mean, you could there's a graph somewhere that shows the problem, and it's it's a it's literally a market economic problem 
where the the price is is um, off kilter with the cost, right? Which is creating a shortage. So that we could so in order for us to fix this market problem, we have to get reimbursement rates that cover the cost of care. And so and and part of that care, um, or part of that calculation is how much do we have to pay the providers to actually go and provide the services? And so um, we've really looked at that in depth. We've kind of come up with, um, you know, a mechanism for us to be able to kind of gauge what those rates should look like. And it's pretty simple. Uh, whatever the rate should market rate should be for that provider, if if sixty percent of their reimbursement rate was that that was that wage. What does 100% of, the, of that rate look like? That's that's covering the costs, and that's really what we need to do. Um, the reality is that is that we're going to have to do more than that, though. Um, but that is the most immediate problem. And you're spending a lot of time right now in the in the legislature, in meetings, and Absolutely. and 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 trying to. I mean, that argument seems rather logical. I mean, how how's how are the conversations going? Are, are the is there, you know, a growing understanding of, of where the stress is happening? Yeah. So, Mark, we've been um, actually working on this problem uh, for six years now. It's just come it's just come to a head. Uh, it's really gotten taken us that long to build the momentum. Uh, obviously, COVID happened. It kind of a perfect storm, if you will. Uh, but we have we didn't just wake up in December and say, you know, we ought to do this. This is a big deal. We've been working on it for a really long time. And quite frankly, um, we've built an uh, an army of advocates to be able to uh, tell the story of their agency in their local community. So um, the, it's the message is resonating really well, and it's because people understand that hey, in order for me to keep my business operating, I have to I can't take a loss, right? And we're you know our programs are serving very vulnerable people in the community. And if they don't have access to those community services, they're going to go without care until they have an emergency. And then they're going to go into a building to receive that care. And for so many Ohioans, that means that they're never going to come out of a building. They're going to live there the rest of their life, however, however long that is. And so I think people really understand that both from, from a business perspective, but also a humanitarian perspective. And so, um, this is my third budget with this organization, and this is the first time that we went into the budget talking about rates. Normally, it's been a conversation we've had to sort of drum up, um, and you know we've really appreciated the DeWine administration's focus and 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 honesty about the the rate situation. They've they've um, certainly moved the needle a little bit um, in with the rate conversation, but it's not nearly enough to you know, uh, to to stop the bleeding, if you will. So uh, we feel like we've got pretty strong support in the in the legislature to to do more, make more investments than the administration have. Um, but we're going to go beyond that, and we're going to ask not only that they increase the rates substantially, but we're also going to ask them to create a mechanism moving forward in which we can look at what the cost of providing the care is, so we never get to this place again. And so uh, we have a lot of optimism. But it's politics, Mark, and you know you know this as well as I do, that sometimes there's things that are outside of our control that influence this stuff. Sure, and I you you kind of asked 
or answered the the last question I was going to ask, but uh, and this is actually for both of you to you know take a take a um, swing at. But what what are the other things that can be done to help agencies that are trying to enable you know folks to stay at home and get the care um, you know for those Medicaid patients? You know what are the things are you are you talking about? Well, uh, from the agency perspective, you know we we look at our patients in the home and we're looking at being able to extend and augment the workforce. Technology is changing every day, becoming better and better. Artificial intelligence is starting to take on a big role. So, you know, we're looking at the ability to be able to bill for remote patient monitoring and chronic care management. We do not have to have a significant cost to providing care after we stabilize, stabilize patients in a, in a skilled setting, right? So if, if we're in there and we're providing the nursing and the therapy and we're going to be quick in and out, as I like to call it, the ability to be able to manage that patient from afar virtually after we depart from services will hopefully help keep the cost down because rather than that patient going back into the ED and then potentially a hospitalization leading to an acute stay at a skilled nursing facility, you know, if we can head that off and actually change orders and get the nurse back into the home to be able to stabilize before that entire pathway happens again, we think that not only is that going to be good for our patients who don't want to go into the ED if they don't have to, it's also going to be good for the cost of care. So remote patient monitoring, chronic care management through virtual platforms is something that we're looking into because that's also a way to augment the workforce. I tell people all the time, artificial intelligence and technology is never going to replace the nurse and the aide at the bedside. But if that technology can tell us when to provide care rather than when it's scheduled, we have a heck of a lot better opportunity to be able to provide care to that patient when they need it. And, and I think that that's going to make a huge impact. I'm excited to see what's going to happen with the technology. Joe, anything to add to that? There? Yeah, I, uh, I, would, I would add that uh, just a kind of extension of what I was referring to before um, is we, we're asking, we're going to be asking for a uh, rebasing structure to be brought to Medicaid home health. And what that effectively does is it requires providers to keep a, a, a uh, cost report on all, all of the costs that are associated with running the business um, in, including investments and training and all these things, um, and then report that essentially to the department. And then the department looks at those at those cost reports to then set the rates using those cost reports. Uh, this is how it's done. And although the reimbursement uh, methodology is different for nursing homes and for hospitals, uh, it's very similar uh, concepts that they use to establish those rates. And so um, we would we dream of a world where the rates are actually uh, case rates, where reimbursements are uh, both a mechanism of the unique needs of that patient. Um, so we're not getting paid the same amount for every patient. You know, a sicker patient's going to be more expensive to serve, um, but also a pay for, for a pay for performance mechanism where. Um, we're really giving providers an opportunity to make more money by by really trying uh, to increase quality. Those two mechanisms are are a legitimate possibility, but we're not we're not there yet. Um, so our first step is to uh, get their get the reimbursement rates to a point where they're covering 
getting as close to covering the cost of care as possible, then also bringing rebasing so we can look at this issue uh, in a multitude of different ways over a long period of time and then set the rates ba based on a, a solid methodology. And then we can start having some very substantive conversations around quality and, and care delivery innovation and doing some really cool things uh, with um, getting patients, um, frankly, to, to be able to stay in the community where it's it's cost less to, to provide that care. I just echo Joe's um, gratitude towards the DeWine administration and the Department of Medicaid. It is definitely um, a different place to start the process, and we're extremely grateful for the attention being paid. Um, but, you know, as outlined in today's chat, it's just not enough. Great starting point, but we, we need to do more and we need to do better to be able to really make sure that Ohioans are getting the care that they need and that they're entitled to. Right. Absolutely. I would just add um, a thanks to all of the um, home care and hospice and palliative care organizations across this state that have really hung in there during some pretty tough times. Uh, it's not been easy, um, but this is the future of healthcare. And um, our association in uh, being led by our membership um, is, is shaping the future of what healthcare can look like. And that's super exciting. Um, and uh, so the message I want to deliver to all the agencies out there is, is hang in there because help is on its way. Thank you for listening to Talking Points. You can download previous podcast episodes by visiting lessitcamper.com slash talking points or searching directories such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google.